Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now, today on the podcast, I want to talk about something that's been very personal to me in this last year. And frankly, it's a bit difficult to talk about because it has been a challenging season of life. To put it bluntly, our friends are dying. Over this last year, we have had uh, several friends that we have known in most cases for more than 30 years who've passed away. Some of these were from uh, rather sudden illnesses, others from more long-term chronic difficulty. But nevertheless, it's been a new experience for us to have this many of our peers our colleagues, our friends, especially people our same age who've been passing away. And as I'm making this podcast today, we have another friend who's in hospice, who's uh, been told that she has just a few days left to live, and we're anticipating the grief that will come with her passing. And then uh, my wife has recently learned that a beloved family member is also in the final stages of life. And so grief, bereavement, and ministry in those contexts has been very real to us, both from the perspective of us offering ministry to people that we care about who are grieving, and also people ministering to us in the context of our grief. So I want to talk with you today on the podcast about ministry during a season of death, loss, and grief. Now, you might already be thinking, I want to turn this podcast off because I don't want to talk about these things. Well, unfortunately, if you're a ministry leader, that is not an option. In fact, as ministry leaders, we are often expected to know how to do meaningful ministry in these contexts of death loss, and grief. We're often called on not only to know what to do, but to uh, be the leaders in these contexts to provide the care needed for families. And so it's not really an option for you to turn off the podcast and say, I don't want to think about this. It is instead your responsibility to understand some best practices about ministering to grieving people, to bereaved people, to people who've experienced the death of someone important to them. It's your responsibility to understand those best practices and to know them well enough and to be experienced enough with them to be able to step into situations and offer meaningful ministry. So today on the podcast, let me see if I can give you some best practices that you can implement to provide good care to hurting people who've experienced the death of someone very near to them. The first and most important best practice is this. Show up. Make personal contact as soon as practically possible. Now, this is one of the best uses of the telephone. Not the telephone as a texting device or the source of your email, but as a way to put your voice in someone else's ear. So when you hear of a death, 
if you can't physically get there in a way that is practically possible, pick up the phone and make the call. Your presence is more important than anything else. So getting there physically or, if need be, getting your voice there is so essential. Now, why does this matter so much? Because people will not always remember what you said or what you did, but they will remember if you were there for them, including uh, if you called them. I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, well, I was so surprised that soon after my friend died or my husband died, my mother or father died, Dr. Orge called or he showed up at our house. They don't always remember what I said, but they definitely remember if I was present. Your presence is vital. Why is that? Well, first of all, because you represent God. You say, well, I don't represent God. I'm just a youth pastor. Yes, you do. To the people who are following you, you represent God to them. You are a personification, an incarnation, if you will, of God's presence and work in their lives. And so when you show up, you represent God. And beyond that, you remind people of Jesus. You are that incarnational presence. You are God with skin on, if you, in a sense. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about some weird kind of thing like uh, you're like Jesus and that he was incarnated as the Son of God. None of that nonsense. You know that. But when, but when people see you walk in the room, they feel closer to God. They're reminded of Jesus. And you're also an agent through whom the Holy Spirit is working. You bring a sense of peace a sense of conviction, a sense of oughtness or rightness when you come into the room. Now, you may think, wow, I, I just don't think that highly of myself. I, I, I don't value my presence that much. I, I'm not that special. Well, I might agree with that last statement. None of us are all that special. But that does not discount this profound reality. Ministry leaders, particularly pastors, represent God in the lives of the people who follow us. We represent God. We personify Jesus. We're an agent or a channel through whom the Holy Spirit is working. And so the first reason your presence matters so much is that the, that you are a representative of God in the relationship. A second reason that it matters so much is because you symbolize the presence of a particular church, or in my case, a particular institution or organization. All of us have had this experience where uh, someone becomes ill or is bereaved and a deacon or an elder or a Sunday school teacher uh, reaches out to them and we later overhear them say, well, no one from the church came. Well, you're thinking, yes, we did. What they're saying is the pastor at the most important moment of their lives when their loved one has died, when they are feeling as broken, as vulnerable, as needy as they could possibly imagine, in that moment, their church, or in my case, their seminary, showed up when the pastor or the president walked in the room. Now, you may also say, well, I just don't want that burden. I don't represent a whole church. I don't represent a whole movement, a whole organization. Well, once again, you don't get to make that call. When you took on the title of pastor, in my case, president, when you took on that responsibility, 
you became the personification of your church or of your particular institution. Now, you might be thinking, well, does that mean I have to visit every single person and I'm the only one who can actually get that done? Absolutely not. But it does mean that you're going to have to be a part of making these contacts and making these visits in order to fulfill the full ministry your church has to offer in the situation. And so you want to show up in person if possible with your voice at least if, you're, if you can't physically be in the room. You want to show up because you represent God and you represent a particular church. But then there's a third reason, and that is nothing shows care like personally investing yourself into a situation. Like showing up personally or at least putting your voice into the situation, nothing says I care and I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. I'm invested in you. I want to be a part of this. Like you actually physically showing up or in some cases at least your voice doing so. Now, when you show up, you have done the single most important thing that you can do in a bereavement or a grief or a loss or a death situation. Show up. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's really painful for me. It seems awkward. I don't want to feel like I'm intruding or I have my own issues I'm trying to deal with, and I, I'm not sure I want to take those into the situation. These are all aspects of your life that you need to work through in order to prepare yourself to be a ministry leader. You can get a training through seminary or through other means to help you understand how to function in this situation. You may need to get counseling to address your past grief or situations related to your grief that you've not yet fully worked through that you that you're carrying with you into situations like this. You may just feel awkward because you're inexperienced. You, you've just never been in this many of these situations. That's okay. Uh, you can get through that awkwardness by recognizing that the only way to get experience in a situation is to plunge yourself into the situation. And so while you may feel hesitant, you may feel ill-equipped, you may feel awkward, you may even feel a little anxious because of your own sense of ill will or being ill at ease about this kind of situation in your life, press through it. Press through it. Because as a ministry leader, you have a responsibility to show up. Step one, be there. The second best practice that I want to talk with you about is once you arrive in the situation, initiate conversation about the death and the circumstances. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Now, let me be very clear. That does not mean you go into the situation and you start making pronouncements based on your assumptions about what's going on in the situation. Don't go in and start making pronouncements based on your assumptions. When I say initiate conversation, you do that best not by making speeches or preaching sermons or saying long prayers. You do that best by asking open-ended questions. So, for example, you hear of a church member whose father has passed away. You might immediately assume, I'll bet this is a tragic situation and I need to get in there and see what I can do about it. And you go into the situation with that assumption and you make a fool of yourself. What you should have done was go into the situation and say to your bereaved church member, I understand your father has passed away. Tell me about that. I understand your father has passed away. 
What can you tell me about the situation? I understand your father has passed away. Can you, can you describe for me what that's like for you? These kind of open-ended questions give the person the opportunity to respond. So, for example, I've asked this question of people before and had them say, oh, my father was my closest friend, my spiritual guide. I'm going to miss him horribly. It's the worst tragedy I can imagine in my life. I've also asked the question and had people say, I despise the man. I'm glad he's gone. Now I've got a whole other set of issues to deal with. I've also had people, I've asked the question and they said, you know, I haven't seen this man in 20 years. He stepped out of my life and I grieved his loss and went through counseling and got beyond all of that. And frankly, his death is not that meaningful to me or not that difficult for me. But thanks for asking. I've heard all of these kinds of responses because I go into situations asking open-ended questions, not going into situations making presumptive statements based on my assumptions, not going in, quote, with all the answers about how a person should feel or how they should react or what they should think in a situation, but instead asking good, open-ended questions and then making, uh, basing my response on what they say. Now, in asking these good open-ended questions, I want to listen more for the feelings that are expressed in answering those questions, not the facts or the clear explanation. In other words, I'm not asking for a blow-by-blow account of their cancer treatment. I want to know how the person who's been bereaved or who's hurting in front of me or who's gone through the experience and I'm trying to discern how it's impacted them. I want them to talk to me about it, and I want to listen more for their feelings than for their facts. And I don't want to probe into the details uh, of the, uh, with my morbid curiosity about their treatment. I want to probe into the details about the feelings the person has about the situation. So, for example, you go into a situation and you say, I understand your, your mother has passed away. Can you describe for me what happened and maybe how you're feeling about it? Yeah, I'll tell you how I'm feeling about it. The doctors are morons. They should have done differently. They should have treated her better. I brought her in and this happened and this happened and this happened. Now, you're tempted at that moment to say, well, tell me about those treatment plans. Tell me what the doctors did. Tell me, why you, tell me about the, uh, the protocols, as if you're some expert in these areas. What would be the better question? The better question would be, you know, you seem really angry about how all this, went out, how, how all this worked, worked out. Tell me about that. What's making you so angry in this situation? Your focus is on the feelings the person is expressing, the grief they're living through and helping them to process what's happening to them, not being sidetracked into some morbid curiosity detailed description about the death or the medical treatment or something like that. Now, if a person needs to tell you some of those details, that's fine, but you're not there to ferret out all that information. You're there to focus on the feelings that are being expressed and what's happening in that conversation based on those feelings. Now, that leads us to the third best practice, and that is you want to learn the stages of grief and be comfortable with them as people are expressing them to you during ministry of bereavement or ministry of loss. What are the stages of grief? Well, it depends on uh, the psychologist you read and the uh, model that you're using. Some people say there are five stages of grief, some six. I've seen as many as 13 listed in some different writings. It really doesn't matter which one of these models you use. Just pick one, become very familiar with it, and use it as a diagnostic tool when you're having these conversations with people. 
For example, I like a six-fold model of grief. It's helped me over the years to understand this process. These stages of grief include shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. Let me say that again. Shock, anger, denial, bargaining, exploration, and adjustment. These are the stages or phases people go through as they're processing their grief. What does shock look like? Well, this can be um, uh, emotional outbursts. It can be uh, people in almost a catatonic trance. It can be people who are uh, not really uh, able to think clearly about what to do in the moment. When people are in shock, uh, their their mind's not uh, uh, working uh, in, in a coherent, sequential way. Shock. They're a little bit immobilized. Uh, they're, they're, it's disconcerting. It's disorienting. I, I went through a, a grief process this year, and quite honestly, the first 36 hours after I heard the news, I was disoriented. I, I just couldn't think straight. Uh, it didn't mean I, I couldn't think at all. It's just my thoughts just weren't making any sense. Uh, I felt like a popcorn machine was going off in my brain. It was like thought, the thoughts were just ricocheting around. I just couldn't get it together for a couple of days of trying to get past the shock of what had happened to me. And then the second anger. This can take the form of verbal outbursts, and those verbal outbursts might be expressed toward doctors, toward other family members, toward um, people who in some sense were perceived as failing in the situation. And sometimes this anger can even be expressed on you as a ministry leader. Now, this takes real wisdom to understand when this is happening and to not react to it negatively. But sometimes when people lash out in anger, now get this, they lash out at the safest person, not the person who should be the true object of the outburst. In other words, they may lash out at you and express a tremendous amount of anger toward you that you feel is misplaced, or maybe toward your church, which may seem misplaced, when what they're really angry about is they're angry with the physicians, they're angry with other family members, they're angry with powerful people in their lives that they know if they lash out uh, toward them, they're going to get a backlash that will be harmful to them. Their anger is uh, misplaced because while it should be focused on some of these people, they vent it on you. This requires real discipline as a ministry leader, to not let a person's anger distract you or dissuade you from continuing to provide the ministry they need in the moment. Just don't overreact to anger that's expressed during the grief process. Don't overreact to anger that's expressed as a part of working through bereavement and loss. It's a real part of the way people respond, and it's not just the bad people or the weak people or the spiritually immature people who respond with anger. Anger is a normal response that everyone moves through in, during bereavement or loss. Now, some people, depending on their level of maturity and spiritual growth and the situation at hand, they may move through anger fairly quickly. But don't be surprised if they don't, and don't be surprised if it comes up again from time to time. This third stage of grief is denial. This is a sense of uh, of 
bargaining, uh, excuse me, uh, a denial is, is, simp- is, is simply the numbness that comes from not knowing what to do and acknowledging that what is real has happened. People in denial say things like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Um, people in denial are, are saying, I, I, I can't believe that this is, this is real. I, I don't want to plan the funeral because they can't really be gone. I don't want to think about dealing with life with my children without their father because this can't be real. They, they want to put off dealing with the situation because they're in denial. And then there's bargaining. And this is uh, people having the, a difficult time accepting reality and trying to figure out a way to sort of bargain their way through it, if you will, uh, to make up uh, ways to deal with it without really having to deal with it, to put up barriers or walls or, or, uh, or, or things that keep them from having to face up to the reality bargaining. Well, shock, anger, denial, bargaining, and then exploration and adjustment are what you're there to do, and that is not always going to happen in the first meeting, but you're there to help them to start exploring new ways of responding to their grief and loss, and then moving forward uh, to make a difference in how they're going to live with their new normal going forward. That's adjustment. Now, as a ministry leader, When you step into a situation and you initiate open-ended conversation to draw out a person's feelings and perspective, what you're going to get out of them are expressions that are going to be demonstrations of these stages of grief. So you may hear some uh, shock. You may hear some anger, some denial, some bargaining. And you're wise enough because of the training you've received and the reflection that you've done on these processes, you're wise enough to know what's happening and to continue helping the person move through these stages or phases toward exploring how to move forward and what adjustments need to be made to deal with new normal. Some of these happen in the immediacy of the moment. For example, you go out uh, to a hospital where someone has passed away and you say, I, uh, I, I understand that your father has passed away and I came to offer my support today. How are you feeling about this? Well, I can't even believe this happened. I don't even know what to do next. This is this is beyond anything I was expecting. This wasn't supposed to happen this way. You know, uh, he was in such good health. This is so sudden. I don't even know what to think. It's like, I understand that. Well, let's work on that together. Let's explore some possibilities of what to do next. Uh, first of all, um, who do we need to call to let know this has happened? Uh I, uh, I don't know. I guess I need to call my brother. I guess I need to call call, call uh, my, my my boss at work and tell him I won't be in for a few days. Okay, let's let's just start jotting a few of these down and exploring how we can move forward through some of this. So this is what I mean by you understanding what a person's going through and and not lecturing them or not correcting them, but simply helping them to explore how do we move on and how do we move on from here. Now, I'm going to talk about this more in just a few minutes, but. Not all of this kind of conversation takes place in one moment or one meeting. So some of this may take place, you know, over the next few days and even over the next few months. For example, in the scenario you're working from, you went to the hospital, the person's father has died, it's been rather unexpected, and your first exploratory questions are, uh, and who do we need to call? What do we need to do first? How can I help you make that plan? And what can we do about that? That is not the time to say, have you thought about who are going to be the pallbearers? I mean, that is way too early to be having that conversation, all right? So you don't want to explore everything that has to be explored with someone and help them move on to the final end of their grieving process. You're just trying to help them move to step one. I know you're in shock. I know you're angry. 
but we got to move past denial of what's happened and, and, and hopeful bargaining that we can work our way out of this and come to some reality. Who do we need to call? Who do we need to inform? What needs to happen first? And, that, and then you're starting the process of exploration and adjustment. So we're going to show up. We're going to initiate conversation with good open-ended questions. And we're going to learn and listen for and diagnose and implement care for people in the various stages of grief. Now, that leads us to number four. A fourth best practice is offering appropriate spiritual support. You're a spiritual leader. It is appropriate to offer to pray with someone who's hurting. It's appropriate to offer to read the Bible with someone or to give them a passage of Scripture to read on and think about and meditate. It's also appropriate to carry some Christian literature with you and and leave a pamphlet or a booklet that says, you know, as you begin to think about moving forward, here's a booklet that I've brought with me to leave for you today. Now, you may not leave that on the first on the first visit. For example, when I was a pastor, I for years had a little booklet on dealing with the death of a spouse, and um, and I wouldn't give it to the person the first time I met with them, but. Um, but after we'd met for a couple of times, or maybe even after the memorial service, I would say, you know, this little booklet has helped a lot of people. I'd like to leave it with you. And when you have interest, perhaps you'll have a chance to look at it. And I would leave it. And when they were ready, they would take a look at it and read through it as, to get help maybe on the situation they were dealing with. There are also good materials out there, for example, on the death of a child or something like that, that you could leave with someone to read in their timing or at their point of need. It is appropriate to do this. Now, you, you want to be wise and careful about this. Uh, you don't need uh, long prayers that turn into sermons, and you don't need to leave them chapters and chapters of Scripture. But boy, there is something comforting about reading the 23rd Psalm with a person when they're really hurting and saying a prayer asking God to give them peace and grace and support in their lives. That's the kind of ministry and care I'm talking about right now. And then, of course, we move on to number five, and that is discover practical needs that grieving, bereaved, hurting people have, and meet them if you can. So, for example, um, it's very common in churches to arrange food for the families of grieving, hurting people, especially if there are large numbers of people coming in for memorial services or things like that. It's possible also to arrange child care. Uh, a, a lot of people think, oh, the whole family should go to every service and go to the events at the funeral home and all of these things. And I would strongly advocate that children uh, be included in these processes because it helps children to be enculturated into how to process these experiences as they're growing up through life. They shouldn't be overly sheltered, but also recognize the reality, uh, especially preschool children are not going to have a capacity to stay at a funeral home for a three-hour wake or to participate in a two-hour memorial service. And so while it's good to involve children in understanding about the, the death process and grief and uh, mourning and bereavement and all that's going on in the family and why, it's also important to arrange some child care for them so that they can have some relief from that and your, the children can be, be cared for in that context as well. And then another part of this is the other extreme, that's elder care. That's taking care of people who are responsible for de dealing with and, and caring for elderly relatives or elderly family members. These people also may need care so that the rest of the family can move on with uh, the, the bereaving and grief process. Now, here's a couple of other ones that you don't maybe think about. One is providing home security or, uh, during memorial services or during times of grief. I read about this recently, and I was shocked that people would do this, but then I remembered how evil people really are. 
Uh, people watch for obituaries in newspapers or on, online, and then they find out the address of the person who passed away and when the service is, and they find out where their family members live, and they go and rob the house, the house um, of the person while no one's there for the service. So you may have to have someone that can provide security in these kind of contexts to watch the place, if you will. And then finally, uh, lodging for out-of-town guests and providing special uh, places for people to stay, things like that. Now, this is not a comprehensive list. All I'm simply saying is that a church community has the capacity to offer some practical care for people during the time of bereavement and loss and grief. Uh, you can provide food, child care, elder care, security, um, uh, lodging. These are practical things you can do that communicate uh, your love, your support, your sense of community, your willingness to stand with people. These are practical things you can do that really do make a difference. And then finally, the last thing I would say is a six best practice is provide follow-up that goes on for some weeks or even months after the death or the bereavement or the loss moment. Ministry leaders are wise to um, make notes and put on their calendar follow-up visits to people in these contexts, especially during the first year. Now, it doesn't mean you visit with people every week, but every few weeks in the beginning and then every few months after that and then culminating on that one-year anniversary, it's important to reach out to people and say, hey, it's we're coming up this week on the one-year anniversary of your son's death or your father's death. You're coming up on the one-year anniversary, and I just want you to know that I'm I'm praying for you. I know this will be a tough week. And if you'd like to, we could get together and talk about it. And so sometimes people say, no, I think I'm doing all right. I think I'm moving along, whatever. But other times they'll surprise you by saying, thank you for calling. Thank you for noticing. Yeah, come by. I'd like to visit with you for a minute. Or yeah, let's get a coffee. I think that would be helpful. So follow up ministry to people who are bereaved and grieving and lost very significant as you put on your schedule to stay in periodic contact with people who are going through these processes. Well, I hope this has helped you today. I'm fortunate in my times of grief and loss these last uh, year, this last year, I've had some people who've done some of these things for me, and I'd like to think that I've done some of these things for people who've been going through these circumstances. Ministry leaders have a unique and remarkable opportunity to step into grief and loss and death and to provide meaningful ministry in that context. I'm challenging you to do it today. Don't miss this tremendous opportunity to make a difference in the lives of people as you lead on.